If you would, turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. And as always, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Again, we'll be starting in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Your Father, our Lord, God, we truly find our citizenship, Lord, in heaven with you. Your Son is our King. We follow him, we listen to him, and because of that, the world hates us. Lord, as we see our culture, our country, our society, Lord, uh, turning and and really this, this idea of cultural Christianity disappearing, Lord, we will have opponents if we are faithful. We will face persecution if we truly live a godly life and stand firm in the faith of the gospel. God, I pray that you prepare us well, that we stand in the same way that the church has throughout the past, faithfully, Lord, that you would be with us, that your grace would guide us. God, I pray this testimony of Paul and this This command of Paul would be something that would grow into a conviction for us, Lord. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Today we're going to really just jump right in where uh, Daniel left off last week. And and so I just want to start with a quick review. If you would, just look at verse 27 again. Uh, Daniel preached on this one verse last week. It says this, only... Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In verse 27, Paul starts really a new thought in this letter that he's writing to the church at Philippi. That he's leaving behind his own personal testimony, what's going on with him in Rome in prison. And he's starting to address the church directly. And he starts with this word only, which is important because Paul is emphasizing what he's about to say. And he says this, only Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, this is the first imperative, the first command that we see in the book of Philippians. And and really, it's the most important command throughout the whole book. Because from here on out, this one imperative governs the entire epistle. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This command 
It's like the thesis statement of the book, the, the letter. Everything Paul's about to say derives from this one command. Again, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, we learned last week that the, the, the phrase, let your manner of life, is probably under-translated here, as Daniel pointed out, because the, the word in Greek clearly has a connotation of citizenship. So probably a, a fuller translation, maybe not a better translation, but a fuller translation would be something like this. Exercise your citizenship worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or be a citizen of heaven worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, this is not referring to our earthly citizenship when this word is being used here. Uh, it's referring to our heavenly citizenship, where Christ is our Lord, and for the church at Philippi, where Christ was their Lord, not Caesar, we are citizens of Christ's kingdom. He is our king. Listen, the Bible is so clear on this. This world that we live in is not our home. We have a heavenly citizenship. We are just passing through this world. We are sojourners here, foreigners, aliens. And Paul is going to build on this truth in our passage this morning. If you would, real quick, I want to show you something. Just real quick, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. We'll be right back in the book of Philippians. But there's a, a verse, in fact, two words I want to point out. And, and I really just love this verse. First Peter 1, verse 1. It says this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. Elect exiles. What, just, what, what a great explanation of who we are as Christians. Elect exiles. We are elect, according to Ephesians 1, chosen in him before the foundations of the world. We're God's elect. We are blessed in Christ, in other words, with, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That, that's who we are. We are so blessed by God's grace. But then look what Peter says. To those who are elect exiles. Exiles meaning sojourners or aliens, a people without a home in this world. I mean, the irony of those two words put together is just pretty amazing. Elect means we, we are blessed beyond all comprehension. We are God's chosen people. Exile means living as foreigners in enemy territory. Despite, or destined for, persecution, suffering, and physical death. Obviously, there's a tension with these two words that Peter intended to have here. I mean, this is the Christian life. There's a tension. You're blessed, yet we're foreigners here on earth. And we see this tension in our passage this morning. So if you would turn back to Philippians 1, again, verse 27. This world is not our home. Our citizenship is a heavenly one. Therefore, according to Philippians 1, 27, we are to live out our citizenship, our heavenly citizenship, worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, the word worthy has this idea of weights on a scale. 
Daniel alluded to this a little bit last week. If you would, just picture a scale. On the one side of the scale, you have the weightiness of the gospel of Christ, his death, his life, his death, his resurrection, the weightiness of God's grace on one side. On the other side of the scale is your life. What what Paul is commanding is that we should live in a way that matches the weightiness of the gospel of Christ. Now that's an incredible command. It's an incredible command. In some ways, it's impossible. How are we to do this? How are we to live in a way that would, that would level the scales? How are we to even attempt to obey this command, which seems, again, impossible? Well... Paul is going to spend the rest of the book of Philippians telling us how to do that. In our passage this morning, he gives us three specific ways how we can live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Three ways, as citizens of heaven, we are to stand firm, not in fear, but in joy. Stand firm, not in fear, but in joy. And that's the three points of the sermon this morning, stand firm, not in fear, but in joy. So let's start with stand firm. Again, if you would look at verse 27, it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Daniel, again, did a great job on this one verse last week, so I'm not going to cover everything that he covered last week, but I want to point something out, and and it's the verb standing firm. Standing firm. Meaning one of the ways that, that you can live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is by simply standing. Standing firm. And we shouldn't be surprised by this command because it's a command that Paul Uh, commands over and over and over again. Paul, inspired by God in his writings, over and over and over again gives this command to the church. Let me just give you some examples. Philippians 4.1, later on in the book of Philippians, he'll say this, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We are to stand firm in the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 says this, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letters or the epistles. We are to stand firm in what what we have been taught by the apostles, in other words, the the New Testament, the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 16.13, one of my favorite verses, it says this, Be watchful, stand firm. Firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. I think all these passages are actually related. They're saying something very similar. Let me just kind of put it together. We are to stand firm in the Lord. And we are to do this by standing firm in what the apostles have taught, which is the faith. So again, look at verse 27. Only let... Your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you 
that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You're to stand firm in one spirit, in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, I want to point something out, something that I think is extremely important, especially in our culture. There's something in verse 27 that will be the cause of persecution. That will be the cause of persecution in our country. There's something in in verse 27 that, that faithful Christians have been and will be persecuted for in our culture. Something that our culture absolutely hates. Something that when we preach it, we will be hated for it. It will provoke anger in a postmodern society which we live in. In fact, it's a truth that explains why faithful Christians are slowly becoming more and more marginalized in a society and being labeled as extremists. And amazingly, it's something that's very small in verse 27, grammatically speaking, but it makes all the difference in the world. And here it is. The word faith has an article. The word faith has an article. It's the faith, not a faith. It's striving side by side in unity for the faith of the gospel. It's a particular faith, in other words. It's not just any belief. It's not just belief in something. It's the faith. This is true in 1 Corinthians 16, 13 too. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Act like men, be strong. It's not a faith. It's not just faith. It's not be strong, uh, stand firm in faith. It's the faith. And here's why that's such a big deal. Paul's not talking about your own personal beliefs. He's talking about the faith. The faith that has been handed down from generation to generation for over 2,000 years. It's the faith that men have battled for throughout the years. It's the faith that men, men have sacrificed everything for, or missionaries. It's why they go across the seas. It's why men have died. It's the faith that really started the Reformation led to the Protestant church. Last week we celebrated the anniversary of the Reformation where, where men fought for the faith of the gospel. Grace alone, in faith alone, by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. It's the faith. When Paul says the faith, he's referring to a set of beliefs and convictions and doctrines Truths that make up the good news, that really make the good news the good news. Jude puts it this way, Jude 3. We are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We are called to protect the faith, proclaim the faith, and live by the faith. 
again, the fact that it's the faith and not a faith or just faith is one of the most offensive things you can teach in a postmodern culture. If you stand firm for the faith, saying the Bible says this and not that, you will be hated. If you stand firm in the faith and say the gospel says this and not that, you'll be hated. In fact, you'll provoke anger. Let me just give you one example. I don't give very many stories or illustrations, but here's one that just happened to me recently. I was at dinner about two weeks ago, and I was sharing the gospel with a man from Italy. It was a friendly conversation. This guy was very talkative. In fact, it was hard to get a word in, and I'm trying to get to the gospel. Um, He found out that I was a pastor, and he proudly told me that he lived right next to the Vatican. So I started talking about the Reformation and asked him, do you know what the five solas? Uh, Trying to get to the gospel again, I really focused on sharing grace alone through faith alone, and we talked about that. Uh, Everything was okay in this conversation until I quoted one thing from Jesus. Words from Jesus' own mouth. Any guesses what I quoted that provoked anger? John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As soon as I quoted that, the man was visibly angry. Listen, our culture hates the exclusivity of the gospel. In fact, the the gospel divides. It divides. The faith teaches that there is only one way to salvation— Jesus Christ and his crucifixion and his resurrection. There's no other way. And we will be persecuted for that truth. For proclaiming the exclusivity of the gospel. Proclaiming that there is only one way to God. Only trusting in Jesus through faith can you find salvation. That's where persecution will happen in our culture. Therefore, in our passage, Paul commands the church to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith, which is the doctrines, the beliefs, and the convictions that make the gospel the gospel. Now, what does striving side by side mean? It's actually one word in the Greek, and it's used often in athletics, like sports teams that strive side by side, and I love sports, so I wanted to go to that analogy, but I think Paul had a different metaphor in mind in using this word, because he connects this word striving side by side, which I think is a good translation, and connects it with the the word that's translated translated standing firm. These two words are often used to describe a, a Roman soldier at war. Roman soldiers were known for for fighting in a particular way. This would have just been been known to to those that were hearing this letter. They would stand side by side with with other Roman soldiers, shoulder to shoulder with shields in front of them, making an impenetrable wall. And I think that's what Paul is alluding to when he uses the word standing firm 
striving side by side. In fact, let me just read Ephesians 6.10 and on. He says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil days and having done all to stand firm. It's the same analogy. You know, I don't think most American Christians know this, but we are at war. Christianity is war. Let me just ask a question to prove that point. Why would would Paul tell us to put on armor if this was a time of peace? If we weren't at war. No, Paul is clear. He knows from firsthand experience that we are at war. We are to put on the whole armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes given by the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit. War is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual forces. It's against false ideologies. It's against the lies of Satan. Listen, we are to fight this battle standing, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We are to contend for the faith that was, that was once for all delivered to the saints. We are to be watchful. We are to act like men. We are to be strong. And we, we are to do all of this together as one body, with one spirit, with one mind. We are to make an impenetrable wall like a Roman army standing shoulder to shoulder, side by side, protecting, proclaiming, and living by the faith. Therefore, one of the ways we live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is simply by standing. Standing firm for the faith. So the first point of the sermon this morning is standing firm. Stand firm. Second point is not in fear. Not in fear. Look at verse 28. It says this. This is Paul's words. He says, And not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, the Greek word translated, not frightened, is one of those Greek words that is only used once in the entire New Testament. But this word has this idea of being surprised with fear. In fact, you can see this word used uh, in extra-biblical Greek material uh, to describe horses being scared or frightened and then, then starting a stampede from it running away or being scattered because of this uh, surprise of fear. Paul is saying, do not be surprised by opposition. And don't be frightened in any way by your opponents. Now, 
I think this is just a great application for us. We're coming out of an age of cultural Christianity into something different, and, and we all feel it. And we shouldn't be surprised when people oppose us as Christians. Remember, we are citizens of a different country. This is not our home. The Bible is clear. We are going to face opposition. In fact, we are going to face persecution. Let me just give you some examples of the Bible clearly teaching this. John 15, 18. We know these verses too. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Elect exiles. Our citizenship is is not of this world. Verse 20, remember the world, or the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, who they took to the cross and killed, they will also persecute you. Matthew 5.10 says this. Once again, this is Jesus teaching. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus says this, Be Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is not a, a New Testament teaching. You go to the Old Testament, and almost everyone that was faithful was persecuted. Even persecuted by, by God's own people, the Israelites. The prophets came to the Israelites, and the Israelites persecuted them. What's amazing is that Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. That's Paul being persecuted, and all we see from Paul is joy. 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery, or fiery trial when it, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So God inspired these men to write these things because he knew we would be surprised by opposition. And Peter is telling us, don't be surprised, but rejoice, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the the name of Christ, you are blessed, because, because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. And I could just keep going. Let me just give you one more. 2 Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Period. Why? Because this is not our home. Again, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul is 
telling the Philippian church in our passage, don't be surprised. You shouldn't be surprised. Because all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So don't be surprised when it comes. In fact, Paul is about to make it clear that persecution is actually a sign of salvation. Because again, if this is true, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Then a sign of salvation is persecution. Look again at verse 28. Paul says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now, this verse is a, a difficult verse to translate into in English. Um, the meaning is, is pretty much agreed upon. Everyone kind of knows what it means, but, but it's hard to translate into English, and that's why it's choppy in the ESV. It's just hard to even read out loud. I like the NET, the net translation of this. It, this is how they translate it. Uh, Philippians 1.28. And, and by not being intimidated in any way by your opponents, this is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, a sign which is from God. One commentator put it this way. The fearless response of the Philippians should send a clear signal uh, to their opponents. God will save the Philippians and destroy those who oppose them. It's just a sign of, of, of the persecutor's destruction and a sign of those being persecuted for the faith's salvation. In other words, Paul is saying, fear not, stand firm, and this will be a sign of, of two things, your opponent's destruction and your salvation, which is from God. Now, as I was reading this first and kind of meditating on it this week, I couldn't help but just think of the early church. Um, men and women, I, I just don't feel worthy to, to even call my brothers and sisters almost. I know, I know we're all worthy just because of, of God's grace, and so, so I can't think that way, but I mean, I don't even like using the word persecution at all. Because that puts me in the same camp as them, even though someone yelling at me technically is persecution, right? But to, to, to claim that we're, we're equal to the early church for persecution is crazy to me. I mean, these men, amazing faithful Christians who stood firm in the faith, and listen to this, they didn't compromise the faith to save their lives. I mean, how easy would it have been to say a faith? Yeah, that doctrine's not that. The lordship of Christ, Caesar can be lord, don't kill me. Nope. Christ is lord, burn me at the stake. Men and women who were, were burned at the stake while singing hymns. I mean, talk about a clear sign of uh, of those burning them's destruction and their salvation. 
They were thrown into the lion's den, praising and worshiping the Lord. You think of Stephen as he's getting stoned to death, praying for the the people that are stoning them, salvation. (laughs) Yeah, not not even worthy to put my name with these people. Their conviction and steadfastness and worship of God in such great persecution, their fearlessness was both, again, a sign of their salvation and a, a sign to their opponent's destruction. And because of their fearlessness, the gospel spread like crazy in the early church. Crazy. People saw it. People saw the sign. They said, there's something different about those people. They have something I don't have. And that's what I think of when I hear this verse. But but I actually don't think this is what Paul was thinking of, partly because it didn't happen yet. But when he was writing Philippians 1, 27, 28, he does something once again that he's done a number of times in Philippians already. He, he alludes to an Old Testament passage. If you would, turn to Exodus chapter 14, 10. So I thought you got away from Exodus. Exodus 14:10 says this when Pharaoh drew new or drew near sorry when Pharaoh drew near the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly this is at the Red Sea we know this we've been here they're they're in enemy territory they're sojourners they're they're not in the promised land yet The Egyptian army is heading their way. One side, you have the Red Sea. The other side of them is the Egyptian army, the most powerful army in the world, and they're a bunch of slaves. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, It is because there, there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. What, what have you done to us in, in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And I want you to hear what Moses says. Verse 13. And Moses said to the people, does it, just ask yourself, does this sound familiar? Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. In other words, they will be destroyed. Moses told the people to stand firm. Don't fear. Have faith in the salvation of the Lord. And what happened? The Red Sea parted. Israel was saved. They walked on dry ground. And and then God crushed this army, the Egyptian army behind them, destroyed them. Moses knew that Israel's faith and their lack of fear 
in the face of an approaching army, in the face of their enemies, Moses knew that this would be a sign of, of Egypt's destruction and Israel's salvation. And all they had to do was stand there. Stand firm. God was going to win the war. Listen, Exodus 14, 13 and Philippians 1, 27 through 28 have a, have a very similar construction. And, and I think Paul is alluding to this passage because he's done this a couple of times in the, in the chapter 1 already. One theologian said this, if Paul in, intends a connection between Exodus 14 and Philippians 1, then the message is clear. God will save his new covenant people and fight for them so that their adversaries uh, will be his adversaries and, and will be destroyed. Therefore, we shouldn't fear. In fact, the point Paul is making in verse 28 is that persecution is actually a sign of salvation. Remember, we're citizens of heaven. That's, that's, that's what all this passage is, is founded on. We're citizens of heaven. We live a life worthy of the gospel. If we stand firm, firm in the faith, what's that mean? Well, protecting it. Proclaiming it. Living by the faith. When, when we do that and persecution comes, it's a sign of two things. Our enemy's destruction and our salvation. Persecution is a sign of salvation. Now let me say this, it's not a guarantee of salvation. You may just be a jerk. If you have false beliefs and you're getting persecuted like Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses, it's not a sign of salvation. But if you are proclaiming the true faith, the faith, if you are protecting, proclaiming, and living by the, the true gospel, and you're being persecuted for that, hated for that, then that's a sign of salvation. So therefore, you should be joy-filled when persecution comes. Because it's a sign of our enemy's destruction, and it's a sign of our salvation. It's a sign that we're on the right team. This brings me to my last point this morning. Again, we are to stand firm in the faith, not in fear, but in joy. Last point is but in joy. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now this is really an incredible verse. In fact, I, I don't think I've ever studied this verse and really meditated on it until I, I started studying Philippians. And what it says is incredible. Because look how it starts. For it has been granted. Now the word granted here has the same root word as grace. It means God has graciously given you something. Paul is saying that God has graciously given the Philippian church two things. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not, not only, first thing, 
believe in him, but also, second thing, suffer for his sake. God has granted the church at Philippi two things, belief in him and suffering for his sake. Now let that settle in for a second. Now I've already preached on faith being a gift. We covered this pretty in-depthly at Philippians 1, verse 6. The Bible's just consistent on it. Let me just give you a couple verses. Saving faith is a gift. It's clear in Scripture. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Acts 11.18, When they heard these sayings, they, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted, same word, granted repentance that leads to, to life. Repentance is just the other side of faith. Acts 13.48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. They believed. Philippians 1, six, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work, the, the good work of salvation, began with God. He began it in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So, so faith is, is clearly a gift from God, but, but that's not the only gift Paul talks about in verse 29. Again, verse 29 says this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. According to Paul, suffering for the sake of Christ is a gracious gift of God. Now again, let that settle in for a second. That is an incredible verse. I, as I was, again, just thinking about this over and over again, I, I think this is a stronger state, statement than James 1-2. Which is, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We're to count it joy. Paul is saying, we are to consider persecution a gracious gift from God. leads to an obvious question, which I'm sure many of you are asking right now in your heart. How? <laughs> How is persecution a gift? Well, just quickly, I, I thought of six, six ways. Six ways persecution is a gift. Let me just go through them quickly. First, persecution produces godly character. Again, James 1, 2 says, count it all joy my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So persecution produces godly character. Second way, persecution can advance the gospel. Philippians 1.12 Paul's already said this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, which is persecution, what he's referring to, has really served to advance the gospel. In fact, persecution has always strengthened the church. Always. And has often, more than not, advanced the gospel to the glory of God. Third, persecution is a sign of salvation. We just learned this. Philippians 1, 28, this again is the NET. 
version, it says this, and, and by not being intimidated in any way by your opponents, this is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, a sign which is from God. Persecution shows us that we are not home. This is not our home. We have a different home. We are citizens of a, of a heavenly kingdom. Fourth, persecution gives us an opportunity to suffer for Christ. You know, I've said this a number of times. There's only a few things you can do in this life that you will not be able to do better in the next life. We worship in this life, but our worship is incomplete. Next, the next life and eternity, we'll be able to worship with pure hearts. We know God in this life, but but we'll actually see him face to face in the next and, and know him so much better. We're sinful in this life, but, but we'll be sinless in the next. But there's a couple things that we cannot do in the next life. One of them is evangelize. We get one opportunity to do that, this life. But another one is suffering. We only get one opportunity to suffer well for Christ. And that's this life. For how much he suffered for us, we get one shot at it. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. This is what Peter did in Acts 5. He didn't just preach it, he lived it out. He rejoiced in that he was counted worthy to suffer dishonor for, for Jesus' name. That brings me to my fifth way persecution is a gift. Persecution can build confidence in the Lord. Build confidence in the Lord. Acts 5.41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were beaten, Peter. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. If you know this passage, they were doing that. They get, they get beaten. And, and the, the people that beat them said, do not preach or teach Christ's name anymore. And what do they do? More confidently go out and preach and teach Christ's name. Bought confidence. And we saw that with Paul. He said, because of my persecution, being in prison, the brothers are more confident. And finally, the sixth way persecution is a gift is that just like in Paul's life persecution can produce joy can produce joy look at what Paul says in verse 30 he says this engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have and he's referring to his testimony he just talked about what I just told you, that you now hear that I'm still in this conflict being persecuted. Paul is telling the church that, that they are engaged in the same conflict he's in. Now let me ask the question. What has Paul made super clear so far? What, what did the, this conflict produce in Paul's life? Joy. Joy. The advancement of the gospel, these brothers are being strengthened, that that the whole empirical guard has heard the gospel, that there, there are people in Caesar's own household that, 
that are saved joy. I mean, that's the first part of this whole chapter. That's why Paul spent so much time there. Paul was joy-filled despite his circumstances, despite persecution. In fact, in a lot of ways, Paul was joy-filled because of the persecution. He wants the church to have the same joy. You know, I think about this a lot in my life. Would I want everything this world has to offer and just be a billionaire and be depressed and miserable? Or do I want to be like Paul in prison with my life on the line and joy-filled? Which one would I pick? Paul knows which one we should pick, and that's why he wants it for the church. Therefore, he tells the church that, that suffering for the name of Christ is a gift. It's a gift. Because it produces godly character, it advances the gospel, it's a sign uh, to our enemies of their destruction and the salvation, our salvation. It, it gives us an opportunity to suffer for Christ. And finally, it produces joy. And, and our greatest example of this, that it produces joy, is Jesus himself. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus. This is who we, we are to look at. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That was persecution. Paul wants the church to have the same joy. Therefore, he commands them to live a, a life worthy of the gospel as citizens of heaven, to stand firm in the faith, not fearfully, but in joy, because God is graciously with them. Just like he was with Moses and the Israelites at the Red Sea. Let me end this sermon today by saying this. I know a lot of you, and I would throw myself in this camp, are, are just troubled by what we see in the news. What's going on with wars, what's going on in our own country, in our own government, and what's going on even in our local news. Listen, you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry. God is with us. We are just called to be faithful to our calling, to stand firm in the faith, if persecution comes, we will walk through it together, side by side. But more importantly, God will graciously give us his strength to endure it. Therefore, there, there are the three points of the sermon this morning. Stand firm in the faith, not in fear, but in joy. God, I know that just the idea of persecution, Lord, just the thought of what the church has gone through and the history of the church, just the thought of what the church is going through right now in places like China, or for, for us Americans who are just so weak sometimes in our faith, Lord, that is terrifying. Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith and, and strength, Lord, strength of your might, of 
to stand firm. Your Bible, your word is so clear that those who, who desire to live a godly life will face persecution. Help us to be bold with the gospel. Help us to, to live in the faith in, in a way that, that is noticeable. Help us to, to protect the doctrines that surround the gospel and the faith, Lord. And when we're hated for that, Lord, help us to respond in joy. I just have to say amen. morning. Do you find your seats? We'll get started this morning. Again, if you find your seats and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. That's Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. And as always, if you would stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Starting verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightening anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Right. Dear Lord, our Father in heaven, God, I pray that you're with us this morning as we walk through this text, Lord. That we understand that, that the culture and lives that we have lived as Christians here in America, Lord, has not matched the majority of the church throughout the age of the church. That this cultural Christianity that doesn't put a ton of pressure on us for, for being, uh, standing firm in the faith, Lord, is not the norm across the world today or in the history of the church, Lord. And God, I pray that you're with us as we look to the future, as we slowly move towards, as a culture, uh, one of a, a, a post-Christian society, that we will feel the pressures in the future here, Lord, that we will be persecuted for our beliefs, that we will have opponents if we stand firm and strong in the faith. Lord, help prepare us as a church, as a people, that we may be faithful through those times 
in your son's name we pray. I have a lot that I want to cover this morning, so we're going to just kind of jump right in where Daniel left off last week. Uh, So let's start with the review. Daniel preached on one verse last week, verse 27, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, which says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In verse 27, Paul really is starting a new thought here. He's changing directions in the letter. He's leaving behind his personal testimony being in prison. And he's starting to address the church, church at Philippi, this church that he loved so much, directly. And he starts with the word, only. Now, this is important because he's emphasizing what he's about to say. Only, listen to this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, in the book of Philippians, this is the very first imperative, the very first command we see in the entire book. And, and it's the most important. It's the most important imperative. Because from here on out, this one imperative really governs the entire epistle, the rest of the letter that Paul is writing to the church. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This command is really like the thesis statement of the book of Philippians. That everything Paul is about to say derives from this one command. Again, he says, only let, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This phrase, let, let your manner of life, it, it's probably, as Daniel pointed out last week, it's probably under-translated because the word used in Greek, the imperative, uh, clearly has a connotation of citizenship. So probably a fuller translation would be something like this. Exercise your citizenship worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or maybe something like this. Be be a citizen, a citizen of heaven. Be a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, it's clear that Paul's not referring when he uses this word citizenship or this command uh, to our earthly citizenship. Paul is referring to our heavenly citizenship where Christ is our Lord, not Caesar for the Philippian church. Where we are citizens of Christ's kingdom, he is our king. Listen, the Bible is just super clear, and I've said this a number of times. This world is not our home. We have a heavenly citizenship. We are just passing through this world. We are sojourners here. And Paul is going to really build off this truth from this command. Real quick, I want to show you something that I think is interesting. If you would, turn to 1 Peter 1, verse 1. We'll be right back in Philippians. But but there's something in this verse that I think is is really unique and, and important for us to understand as Christians. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1 the introduction to to Peter's epistle here. And he writes this, he says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those, this is who he's writing to, and he says this, to those who are elect exiles. Elect exiles. That, That is just a great explanation or description of who we are as Christians. Elect 
exiles. We, we are elect, according to Ephesians 1, chosen in him before the foundations of the world. We are God's chosen people. We are God's elect. We are blessed, in other words, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's what Ephesians 1, 3 tells us. So, so we are blessed. We are blessed beyond comprehension by, by God's grace. But then look what Peter says right after he says elect. To those who are elect exiles, or sojourners, or aliens, or, or a people without a home in this world. The irony of these two words being put right next to each other is pretty amazing. Elect means, again, blessed beyond all comprehension, God's chosen people. Exiles means living as foreigners in enemy territory. We are destined for, in other words, persecution, suffering, and physical death. Obviously, there is a tension between these two words that really just describes the, the, the Christian experience in such a beautiful way. Describes who we are in, in such an amazing and ironic way. And this tension that we see that we are elect exiles is a tension that we see in our passage this morning. So if you would turn back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Again, this world is not our home. Our citizenship, according to Paul, is a heavenly one. Therefore, according to Ephesians 1, verse 27, we are to live, live out our citizenship worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, the word worthy has this idea of, of a scale or weights. So I want you to just picture a scale right now. On, on the one side of the scale, you have the weightiness of the gospel of Christ, meaning his life, death, and resurrection, and the grace offered to us because of it, the good news, the weightiness of that. On the other side of the scale, you have your life. And Paul is saying, live in a way that matches the weightiness of the gospel of Christ with your life. Now, that's an incredible command, isn't it? I mean, how are we to do this? How are we to live in such a way? I mean, how are we even to attempt to obey this command, which seems just impossible? A life worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, Paul's going to spend the rest of Philippians really telling us how to do this, how to live a life worthy of the gospel of of Christ. In our passage this morning, he gives us three specific ways. Three specific ways. As, as citizens of heaven, we are to stand firm, not in fear, but in joy. We are to stand firm, not in fear, but in joy. And that's our three points of the sermon this morning. Stand firm, not in fear, but in joy. So let's start with that first point, stand firm. Again, if you would look at verse 27, it says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, Daniel did a great job on this one verse last week, so I'm not going to go over everything 
uh, that he preached last week. I'm not going to cover the things he's already covered, but I do want to point out one thing, and it's the verb, standing firm. Standing firm, meaning one of the ways we live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is simply by standing firm. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because Paul commands this over and over and over again in the New Testament. Let me just give you a couple examples. In Philippians itself, Philippians 1.4, he says this again. He says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We are to stand firm in the Lord. Second Thessalonians 2.15 says this, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letters or the epistles. In other words, we are to stand firm in what, what we have been taught by the apostles, the New Testament, or really the scriptures as a whole. 1 Corinthians 16.13 says this, one of my favorite verses. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. I think really all these passages are related. and They're, they're saying something similar. We are, we are to stand firm in the Lord. And we do this by standing firm in what the apostles have taught, which is the faith. So again, look at verse 27. Philippians 1, verse 27. It says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I am here, uh, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We are to stand firm in one spirit and in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, there's something I want to point out in verse 27. Something that I think is extremely important, especially in our culture. There's something in verse 27 that will be the cause of persecution. There's something in verse 27 that faithful Christians have been and will be persecuted for in our culture. Something that, that our culture absolutely hates. Something that, that when we preach it, we will be hated for it. It will provoke anger in a postmodern society which we live in. In fact, it's a truth that explains why faithful Christians are slowly becoming more and more marginalized in our culture right now, getting labeled as extremists. And amazingly, it's something very small in verse 27, grammatically speaking, but it makes all the difference in the world. Here it is. The word faith as an article. It's not a faith. 
It's striving side by side in unity for the faith of the gospel. It's a particular faith. It's not any belief. It's not just belief in something. It's the faith. And this is true in 1 Corinthians 16, 13 too. Here's what Paul says. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Paul doesn't say a faith or even just faith. He doesn't say be watchful, stand firm in faith. He says stand firm in the faith. It's the faith. And here's why. It's such a big deal. Paul's not talking about your own personal beliefs. He's talking about the faith. The faith that has been handed down from generation to generation for over 2,000 years. It's the faith that, that men have battled for throughout the years. It's the faith that men have sacrificed everything for. Missionaries going across Cross the oceans for. It's a, it's a faith that men have died for throughout the history of the church. It's a faith that started the Reformation and led to the Protestant church in the first place. Last week, we celebra- celebrated the anniversary of the Reformation where, where men fought for the faith of the gospel. Doctrines, grace alone, and faith alone, by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. When Paul says the faith, he's referring to a set of beliefs and convictions and doctrines, truths that make up the good news, that make the good news the good news. Jude puts it this way. This is Jude 3. We are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We are called to protect the faith. We are called to proclaim the faith. We are called to live by the faith. Again, the fact that it's the faith and not a faith or just faith is one of the most offensive things you can teach in a postmodern culture. If you stand firm for the faith, listen, if you say the Bible says this and not that, If you say the gospel is this and not that, you will provoke anger. Let me just give you one example. I'm not a big storyteller, so I don't do illustrations all that often that aren't found just in scripture. But but this was just a great example of what I am talking about. I was at dinner, I think it was two weeks ago, maybe a little bit longer. And I was sharing the gospel with a man from Italy, in all places in Tehachapi. I don't know how he got here. It was a friendly conversation at first. The guy was very talkative. In fact, I I was just trying to say something, get in, uh, so I could get to the gospel. Um, When he found out I was a pastor, he very proudly told me he lived right next to the Vatican. So I started talking about the Reformation and asked him if he knew about the five solas of the Reformation. He was a smart man, and Uh, He knew a little bit. Uh, I was really trying to get to grace alone through faith alone and really dive into the gospel at that point. And listen, everything was okay until I quoted words from Jesus himself. Any guesses what I quoted? John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am 
the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As soon as I quoted Jesus' words, this man got visibly angry. Listen, our culture hates the exclusivity of the, of the gospel. In fact, the gospel divides because the faith teaches that there is only one way to salvation. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we will be persecuted for that truth. For proclaiming a gospel that teaches that there is only one way to God, that only those who trust in Jesus are saved, is where persecution will happen in our culture. Therefore, in our passage, Paul commands the church to stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith the doctrines the beliefs the convictions that make the gospel the gospel now what does it mean to strive side by side it's one word in the greek it's often used for athletics and i would love to use an athletic uh, analogy because uh, I like sports, but I think Paul had a different metaphor in mind when using this word because the word translated striving side by side is related to another word he uses and that's just standing firm. These two words are related because they're often used to describe a Roman soldier at war. The Roman soldiers were known for fighting in a, in a particular way. They would often stand side by side with other Roman soldiers, shoulder to shoulder with their, with their shields in front of them, making an impenetrable wall. And I think that's what Paul is alluding to when he uses these words, standing firm, striving side by side. In fact, just listen to Ephesians six ten through 13. This is what Paul says, a very familiar uh, portion of scripture to most of us. Verse 10 says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. This is a prison epistle. It's written at the same time Philippians was written. I mean, Paul was chained to a Roman guard. He had to be looking at this Roman guard and looking at all of his armor and thinking about this metaphor as he wrote these letters. You know, I just don't think American Christians know this, but listen, we are at war. Christianity is war. Let me just ask the question. Why would Paul tell the church to put on armor if we weren't at war? If this was peacetime? And Paul is clear. And he knew this from firsthand experience that we are at war. Now he makes it clear we're not warring against flesh and blood. People are our mission field. But there's a spiritual battle that goes on every single day of your life. Therefore, Paul 
commands the church, commands us to put on the armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes given by the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at at all times in the spirit. And listen, we are to fight this battle striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We are to contend for the faith that, that was once for all delivered to the saints. We are to be watchful. We are to be like men, act like men. We are to be strong, and we are to do all of this together as one body with one spirit and with one mind, making an impenetrable wall a Roman army standing shoulder to shoulder, side by side, protecting, proclaiming, and living by the faith. Therefore, one of the ways we live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is simply by standing. Standing firm for the faith. So the first point of this sermon, again, is stand firm. Stand firm. The second point, not in fear. We are to stand firm, not in fear. Look at verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now the Greek word translated not frightened, it's only used here in the New Testament. It's one of those words that's only used once in the entire New Testament, but we know from extra-biblical writing what the connotation of this word is. It's actually uh, this, this idea of being surprised by fear. It's used often to describe horses being scared or frightened and then stampeding off, running away or being scattered. Paul is saying, saying don't be surprised by opposition. And don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, I really think this is just great application for us, isn't it? We shouldn't be surprised when people oppose us as Christians. Remember, we are citizens of a different country. This is not our home. And, and I know that's extremely hard for us because we have grown up in a Christian culture and we have lived most of our lives in a Christian culture, but that's changing. We have opponents. The Bible is clear. We are going to face opposition. In fact, we are going to face persecution. Let me just give you a couple verses on this. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Here again, we see that tension. God's elect, blessed, chose us out of the world, yet we're still in the world, and the world hates us. Verse 20 says this, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And they persecuted Jesus. They hanged him on a cross. Killed him. Matthew 5.10 says this. This is Jesus again, his words. Blessed are those 
who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when when others revile you and persecute you and, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Listen to Jesus' command here. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is not a New Testament thing. In the Old Testament, we see all types of hatred for those that proclaim God's word in the good news. The the prophets were persecuted, and not only were they persecuted, but they were persecuted by God's own people, the Israelites. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. I mean, this is Paul's testimony. He's obeying Jesus' words. He's being persecuted. He's in jail. And all we see as he gives his testimony of what's going on is joy. 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery, uh, fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And we're kind of seeing this idea that, that the apostles are writing and, and, and expecting people to be surprised when we go out and share the good news and we get persecuted. And Peter is saying, don't be surprised. But he says this in verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are Insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And I, keep, I can keep on going, but let me just give one more. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I mean, it doesn't get any clearer than that. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul is telling the church at Philippi, don't be surprised by persecution because all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In fact, Paul is about to make it clear that that persecution is actually a sign of their salvation. Sign of their salvation. Because again, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Look at verse 28. It says this again. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now this is, this verse is a a difficult verse to translate into English. That's why it's kind of choppy in the the ESV. I really like how the uh, NET, the NET translation, translates it. This is the, the NET translation in the Philippians 1, verse 28. It says this, and by, er, and by not being intimidated in any way by your opponents, this is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, a sign which is from God. One commentator put it this way, the fearless response of the Philippians should send a clear signal to their opponents. God will save the Philippians and destroy any who oppose them. In other words, Paul is saying, fear not, stand firm, and this will be a sign of both 
to your opponents, destruction, and to you, your salvation, which is from God. Now, as I was reading this verse and meditating on it this week, I couldn't help but think throughout the entire week of just the early church. I mean, amazing, faithful Christians. Christians that I, I don't even feel worthy of putting my, myself with them in the same label as Christians. And I know everything I have and everything they have is given by grace, but at the same time, their faithfulness is amazing. Amazing. Men who stood firm in the faith and didn't compromise the faith at all. In fact, it would be so easy to say, well, it's a faith. Yeah, Caesar's Lord, and so is God. So is Jesus. No, men that stood firm in the faith and said, Jesus is Lord, burn me at the stake. Men and women, again, who were burned at the stake while singing hymns. Men and women that were thrown in the lion's den praising and worshiping God as they were getting torn to pieces. Again, I don't even like using the word persecution because it like puts you in that same camp as them. Even though when someone reviles you, that's clearly persecution. But how could we put ourselves in the same camp as people even today that are in China? I mean, in the early church, their, their conviction, their steadfastness, their worship of God in such great persecution, their, their, their fearlessness was, was a clear sign of their salvation and their opponents' soon destruction. In fact, because of their fearlessness and the power of the gospel, it just spread. And people watched these men and women get thrown in the lines and get burned at the stake, singing hymns, and they said, there is something different about them. What do they have that, that we don't? And the gospel spread like crazy. Now, this is a great example of what Paul's talking about, right? the sign of salvation and sign of destruction. But I think Paul had something else in his mind, partly because the early church didn't happen at this point yet but mostly because Philippians 1, 27 through 28, once again, seems like Paul is alluding to an Old Testament passage. We've seen him do this a number of times so far, uh, where he quotes or uses Old Testament passage in, in his writings. Uh, if he would, turn to Exodus 14, verse 10. You guys thought you escaped the book of Exodus. Start in verse 10. It says this, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. 
This is at the Red Sea. We're familiar with this story. They are in enemy territory. At this point, they're sojourners. They're not in the promised land. They're not home. And the Egyptian army is heading their way. On the one side of them, there's the Red Sea. On the other side of them is the the, the greatest army in that day. And they look up and see this army marching towards them, the most powerful army in the world. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They, they said to Moses, is it because there is no graves, there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what, what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would be, have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. I want you to hear what Moses says. And tell me if this sounds familiar. And Moses said to the people, listen to this. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you, you shall never see again. In other words, they will be destroyed. Moses told the people to stand firm, do not fear, and have faith in the salvation of the Lord. And what happened? God parted the Red Sea. Israel was saved. They walked on dry ground. And then God crushed the Egyptian army behind them, completely destroyed them. Moses knew that that Israel's faith, their, their lack of fear... In the face of this approaching army, in, in the face of their enemies, Moses knew that this would be a sign of Israel or Egyptians' uh, destruction, the army's destruction, and Israel's salvation. And all they had to do was to stand firm. Because God was going to win the war. Listen, Exodus 14, 13, and Philippians 1, 27 through 28 just have a similar construction in the Greek, and I think Paul is alluding to this passage. One theologian put it this way. If Paul intends a connection between Exodus 14 and Philippians 1, then the message is clear. God will save his new covenant people and fight for them so that their adversaries will become his adversaries and will be destroyed. Therefore, you shouldn't fear. You shouldn't fear persecution. In fact, the point Paul is making in verse 28 is that persecution is actually a sign of salvation. Remember, we are citizens of heaven. If we live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, if we stand firm in the faith, not a faith, but the faith, protecting, proclaiming, and living by the faith, when persecution comes, and it will, this is a sign of two things. Our enemy's destruction and our salvation. Persecution is a sign of salvation. Now let me be clear, it's not a guarantee of salvation. You may just be a jerk. You may have false beliefs. You're getting persecuted for false beliefs. But if you are proclaiming the true faith, you are protecting and proclaiming the true gospel and you are being persecuted for that hated by others for that 
And that's a sign of salvation. And therefore, you should be joy-filled when persecution comes. Because it's a sign of our enemy's destruction and it's a sign of our salvation. It's a sign that you're on the right team. This brings me to my last point this morning. Again, we are to stand firm in the faith, not in fear, but in joy. The last point is but in joy. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now that really is an incredible verse. I say that often because there's many verses in scripture that are incredible, but this is an incredible verse. Because look how it starts. For it has been granted. Now the word granted has the same root word as grace. Meaning God has graciously given. Well, what has God graciously given? Two things. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, that's one thing, but also suffer for his sake. God has granted the church at Philippi two things, belief in him and suffering for his sake. Now, that's incredible. Let me look at the first part of this, uh, because I've already preached on this, so let me just be quick. Faith is a gift that's clear in Scripture. Uh, I spent a lot of time on this in exegeting uh, Philippians 1, verse 6. Uh, The Bible is just consistent on this. Saving faith is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Acts 11, 18 says this, When they heard these things, they fell asleep, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted, same word, granted repentance that leads to life. Repentance and faith, those are uh, just the same thing, two different sides of the coin. It's Acts thirteen forty eight says this, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And I can keep going, but Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Well, when, the, when did that good work begin? At salvation, when faith was put in Christ. So faith is a gift from God. But that's not the only gift Paul talks about in verse 29. Again, look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. According to Paul, suffering for the sake of Christ is also a gracious gift of God. Now let that settle in for a second. That's an incredible verse. I mean, when I first was studying Philippians, as we're getting uh, prepared to to preach through, and I came across this verse, and I I really meditated on it. I I just don't know if I've ever sat and and thought about the implications of that. I I believe this verse is a stronger statement than James 1-2. 
a familiar one, right? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Because Paul is saying we are to consider persecution a gracious gift from God. And that's incredible. Which leads to an obvious question, which I'm sure many of you are asking. How? How is persecution a gracious gift from God? Well, I can think of six ways, six ways, persecution is a gift. So let me give you two of them, uh, six of them really quickly here. The first one is this. Persecution produces godly character. Persecution produces godly character. Again, James 1, 2 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the first way persecution is a gift is that it produces godly character. The second way is that persecution advances the gospel. Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, that's persecution, has really served to advance the gospel. In fact, persecution has always strengthened the church throughout church history. And often, more than not, it has advanced the gospel to the glory of God. The third way persecution is a gift is that it's a sign of salvation. And we just learned this. Philippians 1.28 in the net version of scripture, it's, it says this, And by uh, not being intimidated in any way by your opponents, this is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, a sign which is from God. Persecution shows us that this is not our home. That we are not home. That we have a heavenly citizenship. That we have eternity waiting for us. A fourth way persecution is a gift is that persecution gives us an opportunity to suffer for Christ. For how much he suffered for us, our opportunity to suffer for him. You know, I've said this a number of times. Almost everything you can do in the Christian life, you can do much better in heaven. Worship, for how much we can worship here and enjoy worship here, we're going to be worshiping with pure hearts in heaven. (laughs) And the joy will be just overflowing. Knowing scripture, knowing truth, for how much... Uh, has been revealed to us, when we can see God face to face, how much more is going to be revealed to us? Our our sanctification, we we will go to heaven and be glorified and and we'll be sinless. And I can keep going. I I mean, there's so many things that we're going to be doing better in heaven, but, but there's at least two things, two things we can't do in heaven that we get one shot in this life to do. The first one is evangelize. You can't evangelize in heaven. But the second one is suffer for Christ. This is our only opportunity to suffer for Christ. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter 4.13, But rejoice, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. This is what 
Peter did, he didn't just preach it, he lived it in Acts 5. He, he rejoiced in that he, he was counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus' name. And this leads right into the fifth way persecution is a gift. Fifth, persecution can build confidence in the Lord. Persecution can build confidence in the Lord. Acts 5.41 says this, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Now, what happened? Peter and the apostles were, were preaching about Christ and teaching about Christ and, and they were arrested and they were beaten and they were threatened. Don't do that again. Well, look at, listen to verse 42. And, and every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. In other words, persecution gave Peter more confidence. He left there with more confidence and, and, and proclaimed Christ boldly. I mean, this is what Paul said in the beginning of Philippians. He said, because of, because of what has happened to him, the persecution that's happened to him, the brothers are more confident to share boldly. And this leads to the sixth and final way that I have persecution as a gift. And it's this. Just like in Paul's life, persecution can produce joy. Look at what Paul says in verse 30. He says this, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Well, where did they hear that he still is in this conflict? Well, this letter, he just gave his testimony of what's going on with him in, in Rome. And Paul is telling the church that, that they are engaged in the same conflict he just talked about in the beginning of the letter. And let me ask the question. What has Paul made very clear so far? What did, what did this conflict produce in Paul's life? Joy. It produced joy in his life. I mean, that's the whole first part of this chapter. Paul was joy-filled despite his circumstance, despite persecution. In fact, in a lot of ways, he was joy-filled because of the persecution. Right, because of the persecution, the gospel was, was heard by, by the whole imperial guard. People were getting saved. The gospel was advancing because of persecution. In fact, members of, of Caesar's own household were saved because of Paul's persecution. Brothers are confident. And he's seen God's hand through it all, and he's joy-filled. Let me ask a question, and I just want to throw this out here because I, I reflect on this question a lot in my life as I struggle with, with, with finding myself in the world and not being a part of the world. Would you rather have everything this world has to offer, all the money in the world, and be joyless, be depressed, or would you rather be like Paul, persecuted in prison and completely joy-filled? Paul knew the correct answer, and that's why he, he is telling the church you are in the same conflict I am. I want you to have that same joy. He is telling the church that, that suffering in the name of Christ is a gift. It's a gift. 
because it produces godly character. It advances the gospel. It's a sign of our enemy's destruction and our salvation. It gives us an opportunity to, to suffer for Christ. And finally, it produces joy. And Paul wanted joy for this church that he loved so much. In fact, I know it produces joy because Jesus is our greatest example of this. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says this, looking to Jesus, we're looking to Jesus as our example, the founder and, and perfecter of our faith, who, who for the joy, the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That's persecution. Paul wants the church to have the same joy. In fact, cultural Christianity in America has just robbed the church of its joy, I feel like. Just robbed the church of its joy. No wonder we're such a depressed people. Not that I'm looking forward to persecution coming. It's coming. But I'm trusting that it's God's grace that, that will be there getting us through it. That we will grow and that we will be joy-filled. Therefore, Paul is comforting this church comforting and he's commanding them at the same time to live a life worthy of the gospel as, as citizens of heaven to, to stand firm in the faith not fearful but in joy because God is graciously with them just like he was with Moses and, and the Israelites of the Red Sea let me just end this morning by saying this I know a lot of you are, are troubled and I would put myself in the same camp troubled by, by what we see in our culture, what we see in, in the news, the wars that are happening around the world. Stuff that's happening in our, in our local city, in our schools. Listen, you don't need to worry. You don't need to worry. God is with us. We just have to be faithful to our calling. Stand firm in the faith. If persecution comes, listen, we will walk through it together, <laughs> striving side by side. But more importantly, God will graciously give us his strength to endure. So we don't have to worry. So that's the three points of our sermon this morning. Stand firm in the faith. Not in fear, but in joy. Let's pray. Dear Lord, our Father, I know there's truths in this passage that are hard for us to grapple with, Lord. We, we have just had such a comfortable life in so many ways as Christians in America, Lord. We have not had to face the persecution that, that we've seen throughout the history of the church, that we see it in the church throughout the world, even today. In a lot of ways, we're blessed because of that. But at the same time, your passage makes very clear that persecution is a gift from you. 
that all we are called to do is stand firm in the faith and trust you through it. That you will be faithful to show up and be there with us. God, I pray that you would give us that faith. I pray that we would be bold. That we would truly stand firm for the faith, Lord. No, no matter how much we are hated for that. Help us to be humble as, as Daniel talked about earlier that we aren't to be arrogant we aren't to be jerks we aren't to be uh, seek persecution just because we're we are trying to be offensive lord the gospel is offensive enough let us just be faithful in proclaiming it and if people are offended they are god help us to stand for firm not in fear but in joy Amen.